The Curious State of Glycerol's Stearate Until last week, this commonly used cosmetic chemical had been something I'd never really thought of looking into. I hadn't questioned its chemistry or function, having used it many times in many different formulations. And while I knew of and appreciated the difference between the self-emulsifying and non-self-emulsifying versions, beyond that, I had little to no interest in spending time analysing that. This. But this has since changed. It came to my attention recently that this particular chemical can be sold under another name, mono and diglycerides, or monodiglyceride, or monoglyceride, or variations on that theme. Chemically speaking, glycerol stearate is, or should be, a monoglyceride. As someone who takes most things literally, and why wouldn't you, I read this chemical as being one part glycerin and one part stearic acid. In my book, that also makes this a monoglyceride. But why call it a monoglyceride when that's less specific and useful than calling it glycerol stearate, which is surely what it is? In order um, to answer that, I think I better break down what a glyceride is and go through some different steps. So glycerides. Glycerides are esters formed by combining glycerin with one or more fatty acids, as in the example I've just given. At this point, it's useful to remember that glycerin likes water and fatty acids typically like being in oil. So hydrophilic and hydrophobic or lipophilic and lipophobic. So a chemical that generally has a water-loving and an oil-loving component to it in this way would be thought of as non-ionic, um, or in this particular way, would be thought of as non-ionic and surface active, um, surfactant, emulsifier, solubilizer, that kind of chemistry. It has the ability to bind oil and water together. So that's it. Putting those two things together on one molecule generally does give us a surface active ingredient. And in this case, it's accurate to think of glycerides as having some degree of emulsifying power. So the glyceride family can be used as an emulsifier. There are three different families of glyceride that exist. There's the monoglycerides, of which I'm thinking the glycerol stearate is one. And this is where there's one glycerin attached to one fatty acid. In this arrangement, we're left with um, two of glycerin's functional groups, or bonding hands, free to make new friends and influence people. The fact that two water-loving functional groups are left available makes monoglycerides the most surface active and the most useful to the cosmetic chemist looking for emulsification properties. So glycerin, if you remember, has three OH groups, two of which are going to still be intact, and the other one will have bonded with a fatty acid. So the O will be linked to a carbon, and off that carbon will be a double bonded oxygen from the fatty acid, and then the tail of the fatty acid. So um, the monoglyceride per glycerin is going to have three oxygens, um, of which two are readily available to bond with um, water loving things. Then we have the diglycerides. Diglycerides are where we have one glycerin and two fatty acids. So the same sort of arrangement, but now there's only one um, OH group of the glycerin that's got its hands empty. 
So in that case, that reduces the emulsification power of this type of chemical, but still leaves a little opportunity for useful surface activity. So mono and diglycerides can both be classed as surface active and having that non-ionic emulsification um, capability or capacity to one degree or another. The third class of the triglycerides, which is where you've got one glycerin um, bonded to three fatty acids. A tri, tri meaning three, glycerin, glycerin has three functional groups, three OH groups. And in this point, all three of them are attached to fatty acids. All of the fatty acids then um, give the whole molecule some oil loving character. And at this point, the oil loving character becomes absolutely dominant in, in most cases, making the vast majority of triglycerides completely oil soluble and um, less likely to be involved at the surface. So they don't have any surfactancy or emulsification properties. In general, this isn't an absolute truth. There are triglycerides with surface active properties, and I'm going to look at those in another article. But for the, the general purposes, we've got monoglycerides, which are the most surface active, diglycerides next, and triglycerides, which are spare, which are not usually surface active at all. Triglyceride um, chemistry dominates most vegetable oils and is typically used as a reference point for identifying the oil and analysing its quality, features and benefits, almost like a fingerprint. So each vegetable oil, seed oil, fruit oil, whatever, will have its own characteristic um, combination of triglycerides based on how the fatty acids are, are combined and what fatty acids are present. As vegetable oils can contain up to 90 or more percent triglyceride, it's not uncommon for other minor chemistry that exists to be ignored. But in reality, most vegetable oils do contain some dye and monoglycerides, plus an unsaponifiable fraction, which is non-glyceride based. Um, and that can contain things like your vitamin E, um, lecithin in some cases, and um, cinnamic acid, as in with your shea butter, and a whole variety of other chemicals, some of which can be really quite interesting and useful for the skin. So the unsaponifiable fraction is a very useful part of vegetable oil, um, but it's a very minor part of its chemistry if you're thinking of you know, the proportion that it takes up. The next thing I need to look at when evaluating glycerol stearate and, and um, you know, what actually it is, is thinking about how it might be made. So this monoglyceride, how do we access it when the majority of oil is in a triglyceride state? And this is where I want to talk about broad versus narrow cuts. So my first aha moment in working out what I was getting or why is there so much variety in glycerol stearate? Why is its chemistry so interesting? So my first aha moment came when I realized that in the world of glycerides, it's quite often incorrect to assume you're buying a material with an exact and precise chemistry. There are a few different reaction pathways that ingredient manufacturers can use or take to create an abundance of monoglyceride. Um, and of that monoglyceride portion, some of it may well be glycerol stearate. And we also call glycerol stearate glycerol monostearate, another name for the same chemical. Both the choice of feedstock oil and the reaction pathway the manufacturer chooses can influence and does influence what you end up with. So it sounds obvious enough now we've mentioned that. So the first thing to consider is the feedstock. As glycerides exist abundantly in vegetable oils, um, 
Vegetable oils are readily available to the cosmetic chemistry, um, cosmetic manufacturer. So it's highly usual that these days that the chemistry that we use to produce these monoglycerides comes from vegetable sources. And out of the vegetables, we are, most of us are aware that the majority of that is palm, although it's not exclusively so. All vegetable oils can give us triglycerides and most of them would be useful in this in this um you know, exercise. The reason that we um, still find palm dominating is because it is by far the, um, it's it's very versatile, it's a highly um, um, abundant oil at the moment for one reason or another, and it's cost effective. So you can, if, if, if you don't ask and you don't seek alternatives, you'll generally be getting a palm, and in some cases, palm or coconut and those together. This wasn't always the case. And when I first started in the industry, um, we regularly had to ask um, our suppliers of ingredient if the fatty acids and glycerides were derived from beef, from tallow, because tallow was quite an, uh, a key um, feedstock for this type of chemistry. Um, but BSE, the uh, mad cow disease or um, whatever, I can't remember the name of it now, um, and other global regulatory changes um, happened and put an abrupt stop to tallow being a, a common feedstock of the cosmetic industry. Mineral oil doesn't naturally contain glycerides, and as such, it's less likely to be the feedstock for this kind of chemistry. But that doesn't mean it could never be. There's there's various ways that mineral oil chemistry might come into this chemistry. But I think it's fair to say or assume that, that at the moment, as things stand, the majority of your glycerol stearate or monodiglycerides, um, um, if not all of them, are going to be vegetable derived. So now we look at the chemistry. So once a feedstock oil has been selected, then we have to chemistrify it. We have to do some reactions. There are many action, uh, reactions that you can do to end up with glycerol stearate or an abundance of monosterates. Um, but two of the oldest and tried and tested methods are A, glycerolysis, glycerolysis, I suppose, um, or B, direct esterification. So glycerolysis or glycerolysis lysis as in splitting is the simplest way to generate some monoglycerides and it involves heating the feedstock oil the triglycerides with glycerin in the presence of a little bit of a catalyst usually something like sodium hydroxide the catalyst isn't usually enough to saponify the oil so we're not doing a complete saponification um, and the triglycerides don't break up completely but, but with that little bit of catalyst, plus the heat, usually 880 to 250 degrees C, um, and the excess of glycerin, and heating the oil improves the solubility of glycerin in the oil, so it makes it more available, that com con combination of conditions uh, produces enough enticement for some of the triglyceride fats to swap their triglyceride relationship for a mono or diglyceride bond. So actually what happens is the triglycerides start losing some of their fatty acids to the new glycerin. So it's almost like a brand new open season um, naked glycerin floating around and it's enticing some of the fatty acids away. And, and as, as a result, you're getting a combination of things where the fatty acids are more evenly spread out. So instead of being cramped up three together on a glycerin, you might end up with some with three, some with two, some with one. And we're after the situation where we've got lots of um, lots of glycerin molecules with just one fatty acid. 
So I linked to a paper, and this is on my blog, um, that's given a lovely graph to represent this change over time, showing that almost um, an almost 100% triglyceride starting material at time zero transfers into a mix of monodi and triglycerides over time. So after about one hour, you have roughly 26% of monoglycerides, 18% of diglycerides, and 66% of tri, so still dominantly triglyceride. But if we come back... Um, um, three hours later, we end up with 40% roughly of monoglycerides and then a 30-30 of di and tri. So getting much more within our favour. Beyond that, um, you don't tend to increase the level of monoglycerides, but the diglycerides go up. So at six hours, we're left with a 40% mono, 48% di, and 12% triglyceride. So again, overall, we have a net improvement in the surface activity of our blend and um, an abundance of mono and diglycerides, so less triglyceride. Seeing that data um, ex um, helped me to understand and explain what I've been um, investigating and, and what, uh, what has been on offer from different manufacturers of, in of this ingredient. It's quite common for an ingredient manufacturer to be offering a range of monoglycerides for sale with varying percentages of mono and diglyceride content. In some cases, some of these materials are called glycerol stearate yet come with specifications that indicate that they too are blends of different glycerol chemistry. So if you're not prepared for that, it can sound and, and feel very confusing and that you're getting an ingredient that actually you didn't ask for, that you're getting this combination when what you asked for is one thing. But that is quite common. The second common method of producing um, monoglycerides um, or glycerol monosterate, if you like, is direct esterification. So this is where a fatty acid, a specific fatty acid, is reacted with glittering, ugh, glycerin sorry, to create a monoglyceride. This reaction is what I thought was happening all along, but, it's, um, but as it's a more complex and um, has many more steps processed than the first, it's actually not the most common method used. So gaining access to fatty, acid, fatty acids requires saponification of the, um, the oil, the triglycerides, to fully break the glycerin fatty acid bond. So when we're doing an esterification, a direct esterification, the first thing is to actually fully saponify the oil. So you're actually separating out the glycerin and the fatty acids. This is a common first step for many fatty um, chemistry um, processes. So it's, it's, it's often done in the cosmetic industry. During full saponification, I'm losing my words. During full saponification, the glycerin is siphoned off onto another vessel, and often that's sold as a separate material or used in other procedures. Then the fatty acids, which are now free from their glycerin bond, can be fractionally distilled or sorted. So if you can imagine, you're left with a whole combination of fatty acids, um, typical of what you'd find in an average fat. So sieving of these fatty acids, um, it enables you to utilize um, the different fractions, so the different, um, the different fatty acids and their chemistry. Um, and we can do that by using their different melting points, um, which correspond with the chain lengths and the way that these things are bonded. So fractional distillation enables us to sort and categorize and isolate different fatty acids within that mix.
So while I like the idea of ending up with completely sorted and isolated fatty acids that you can literally select exactly what you want, again, the reality is not quite that simple. Different markets require different things, and it's much cheaper to broadly separate the fatty acids versus doing it on a more precise um, level. And, and indeed, that's what happens. So the market doesn't need individual fatty acids as much as it prefers a cheap product where there might be a variety of fatty acids that are somewhat similar and, and similarly useful, but not exact or precise. In less specified and paid for, stearate fatty acids um, cuts typically include a range. There might be some C16s and some C C18s in different arrangements. So not just the stearic type. So stearic acid, in case you've forgotten, is a C18 um, fatty acid with zero double bonds. So it's a C18 zero. There are other fatty acids with C18s available, and it's quite likely that all of them will be in a, a blended fatty acid um, cut. So this isn't necessarily such a big deal, and I feel in danger of becoming a little pedantic here, but it is worth noting that in a, in a manufacturing environment, wherever a series of chemistry or broad cut blend can be sold under one chemical name, there is a great potential, there is a greater, sorry, potential for the ingredient to perform differently when moving from one manufacturer or supply source to the next. So basically what that means is that different manufacturers will have different standards of how they sort their broad versus narrow cuts or combined cuts and and also from the fatty acids um, from the fatty feedstock that they choose so all of that will influence the chemistry that you get out so going from factory to factory to find the cheapest or the most convenient for you isn't necessarily going to guarantee you um, the the same chemistry you're not necessarily comparing apples with apples if you like this is a lot less of an issue when the chemistry is precise because you are getting literally something that you can measure and it's very, very, very much more clear. This is likely, this sort of, you know, vagary is likely to present as a bigger problem if these changes mean that the resulting chemical isn't as strong as an emulsifier as, as the previous version you were using or another one that you're comparing it against. So if we are to take these varying cuts of fatty acids and turn them into monoglycerides um, and you're going to end up with some that are really good at emulsifying and some that are fairly useless because they're mostly diglycerides instead of mono or they've got longer fatty acid chains so they're less polar. Any of that sort of stuff can cause you in process problems or difficulties. Not necessarily catastrophic, but differences that you might notice. Before we leave esterification behind, I'd like to come back to the stearate name again and add a little more detail to this. So as I mentioned above, C18 chemistry in oils typically goes beyond just stearic. The saturated um, fat, this also, um, the C18 chemistry tends to also include mono and polyunsaturated fat, fatty acids. These double bonds are, are actually unwelcome complications when we are trying to further react these fatty acids. So it's more common after saponification and sorting into a stearate cut or a broad or narrow cut of stearates that the stearate chemistry is then hydrogenated to create fully um, saturated fats, if you like. So um, that then is um, sold on as steering. 
So often there's a term called, there's a term palm steering, which is very commonly um, used and it's a feedstock or a, a second source of raw material that is common across a whole heap of different um, chemistries that we use in cosmetics. So while direct testification sounds like a simple and elegant process, it's actually a multi-step process and one that can still result in a few variations on the monoglyceride theme, including the, the fact that the fatty part of it may not be just one thing. The varying chain lengths can still exist. So next it's why do we use glycerol stearate? Cosmetic formulators and manufacturers will often reach for glycerol stearate as a co-emulsifier for oil and water emulsions or as a surface tension modifier for oily balms. So surface tension is the um, is not always obvious in a, an, a whole oil product or an oil dominant product, but um, you can improve the spreadability and the aesthetic of a product when you reduce the surface tension and improve the spread. So literally you're making something more spreadable, more compatible with the surface you're putting it on. So an emulsifier in some cases can achieve that for you and create a better, smoother texture. The self-emulsifying version of this chemical is more popular in our industry due to it having a higher HLB, hydrophile lipophile balance. So um, that is something that you probably come across more, but the, the background chemistry is going to be the same regardless. As the step that turns one into the other occurs as a final um, step in the process, it's not it's not the most important thing to talk about here, I guess. So that's why I've left that. Both glycerol stearate and the self-emulsifying version have the potential to be based on broad or narrow cut fatty acids and to be formed by either glycerolysis or by direct esterification. This is what really matters. So the reality is that you can be buying glycerol stearate and end up with an ingredient that is exactly that, glycerin plus stearic acid. Or you could be buying a blend of mono and diglycerides, of which some of it is glycerol stearate or similar chemistry to glycerol stearate. And that can have proportions that range from 30 to 60 percent monoglycerides, of which the majority of that could be glycerol stearate. So that does make a big difference, you know, going from 100% glycerol stearate when you buy from one place to only 30% with the bulk of the rest of it being diglycerides potentially and a little bit of triglyceride. So you can see that the emulsification properties of this chemical when you buy it on face value could be quite different. You know, you could get half as much um, emulsifying power from some using buying exactly the same chemical you know on by the looks of it as as what you might get from someone else but does this really matter for some applications this won't be an issue all cosmetic ingredient suppliers know hlb melting point acid value and rough chemical breakdown of the ingredient that they're selling and genuinely um sorry genuinely can't say it generally if you're using this emulsifier the hlb um is what you'd look at, and if that number is what you're expected, then it should work out just fine. Where problems can and do occur is where this nuance and variety that exists within this chemistry isn't fully understood or appreciated, and brand owners, formulators, or manufacturers change supply frequently without testing new material in situ. And in situ would mean in a representative formula. It's much more likely for cosmetic manufacturers to run into issues also when the glycerol stearate they source is predominantly marketed to the food industry. 
And the reason for that is because they favor glycolysis as a means of producing monoglycerides because it's cheaper and it's faster and it produces the chemistry that works best for them. Manufacturers and formulators are much more likely to get a higher percentage of glycerol stearate in a narrow cut fatty acid blend when shopping from cosmetic ingredient manufacturers and buying specific cosmetic chemistry or chemistry that's also targeted to the pharmaceutical industry. This isn't to say that we can't shop around and use both, but it's more to say that we need to understand the potential problems and not just focus on convenience, natural declarations, material origin, price point, etc. We need to look at the whole chemistry. So the final word, don't take it as a given that you are getting what you ask for when you're buying glycerol stearate. You will be getting glycerol stearate, but the question is how much and what else is in there and does what else is in there make a difference to my application? It may be a yes, it may be a no. So this isn't always a bad thing. This can actually be a good thing and it can actually improve your formula to have a monodiglyceride versus just a glycerol stearate on its own. Those are things that you'd have to find out for yourself from your own laboratory and manufacturing testing. It's not the supplier's fault and it's not illegal or immoral to sell this chemical as monodiglycerides, monoglyceride, glycerol stearate or glycerol monosterate. So these are all legitimate terms that can be applied to these chemistries. This term, these they're all accurate, but they don't give you all the information you need. So do yourself a favour and check out the spec carefully and test out the ingredients in your application to make sure that the choice that you've made suits the job that you're buying it for. And if it doesn't or doesn't seem to, now at least you've got a bit more insight as to why. So isn't chemistry great? Hopefully you enjoy your formulating and I'll see you again next time. I've been Amanda Foxenhill for Realize Beauty.